All right, it's good to be here with you all today. Uh, I'm going to open us in a word of prayer. Jesus, our Lord, thank you that we get to be here on this joyful third week of Advent, celebrating together in preparation for Christmas, gearing up for your arrival as a little infant on this earth. We give thanks that God, out of immense love for us, became like that which God loved, and thus experienced human life and death in all its sorrow and joy. Jesus, I ask that we would make ourselves open to you, hungering to receive and to be transformed more into your likeness, the image of Christ. May we learn from the Father, the source of all knowledge, and from you, Jesus, and your teachings as revealed through the church which you established. And from the Spirit and its movement in the interior of our hearts, so that we may experience ever more fully the satisfying love of God. Amen. So I'm happy to be with you here today on this Sunday of rejoicing. Today is known as Gaudete Sunday. Gaudete is the Latin for rejoice. And the liturgical color for today reflects this it's rose or pink, like our candle. In the middle of Advent, this season of preparation and penance and patience and the color purple, all of the P words, we have a little break of pink. And here we are invited to enjoy and rejoice. This is correlated with another Sunday, the only other pink day in the liturgical calendar, a day in the middle of Lent called Letare Sunday, which also means rejoice. So pink is then to the church a color of joy. And so today I was asked to speak on the subject of joy. Now I've heard a lot of sermons on joy, and to be honest, most of them have been pretty dull. <laughs> they, they typically start and end with the idea that joy and happiness are not the same thing. That is not what I'm here to share with you today. I hope to bring you something that's different, something that's fresh, maybe something that you haven't heard before. Now, most likely not everything that I say this morning is going to resonate with you, and that's okay. But I hope that there are some things which do speak to your heart and give rise to something. And perhaps the Spirit will hover over these things inside of you and create something new. So let us look at our lectionary reading for this Sunday. This is from 1 Thessalonians 5. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now we're going to focus on the first of these three verses, the rejoice always. So I want to ask a question. What is joy? If I were to go out and ask a bunch of different people, they might say that joy is having a lot of happiness or having a life full of fun and pleasurable experiences. Many people would mention having good relationships, relationships that make them happy. Some people might even say fulfillment, that knowing your life purpose and pursuing it is joy. So it seems like our culture would generally say that joy is happiness, fulfillment, pleasure, good relationships, and life purpose. Do you think this is what joy is? I think, essentially, yes. All of these different things are joy. 
And all of these things are good in and of themselves. But the question I want to ask is, what is it that makes Christian joy different? These things may be actual joy, but they may not be the height of joy or the completion of it. So what would make joy more true or more pure or more perfected? And then how does God inform our understanding of joy? Considering our scripture, how is it possible to rejoice always? It certainly seems like for Paul, this was a big part of what joy was for a Christian. For he says, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So I'm hypothesizing that the following things I'm going to list deepen our understanding of joy and our ways in which the Christian understanding of joy differs from the culture's understanding of joy. So joy is related to God. God is the ground of our being and the goal to which we aspire. God is in us and around us. God is found in every relationship that we have, including our relationship with pleasure, happiness, and joy. And of course, joy is one of the fruits of our life with God in the Spirit. Because our joy is related to God, it is less dependent on life circumstances and thus can be resilient. It can exist in both the highs and lows of our lives. Also, Christian joy is sustained. It is continual. As Paul says, we can rejoice always. Now, I'd say the culture does not want us to believe this. If I'm consistently happy, then what need do I have for that new product, that phone, that car, that vacation? Consumerism feeds off of our lack of joy. It tricks us into replacing sustained happiness with temporary happiness. Instead, we know that our joy is deep. It comes from the inside, from the interior of the person, not from the outside stuff that we have. Joy doesn't even come from finding the perfect person to be in a relationship with or the perfect job position. Joy should also be pure. It does not involve harming others, and it is purified of sin and vices. Pure joy is not found in defense mechanisms nor in avoiding pain. And finally, joy is meaningful. There is a purpose and meaning behind joy. If joy is only about pleasure, it is empty and void. Something must come out of our joy, something meaningful, something loving. You see, joy has meaning because it is in relationship with something else. Joy is in relationship with love. And love is the fulfillment of joy. Joy can only be understood fully if understood in light of love. So to explore this further, let us consider the example of Jesus, our Lord. Jesus had all of these things in his experience of joy. I think that's pretty clear. But was Jesus able to rejoice always, as Paul talks about? Was Jesus joyful when he was betrayed by his disciple and friend Judas? when he was wrongfully accused and even convicted of crimes which he'd never committed, when he was tortured, shamed, and crucified. How could it have been possible to have joy? But if we're taking the Bible seriously, we must consider both that Christ truly endured these sufferings and that Paul exhorts those who model themselves after Christ to have joy always. It's hard at times for me to imagine, but I think... Truly, Christ did have joy in his passion, 
for joy can coexist with great suffering. Happiness and pain are not mutually exclusive. Happiness and pain can go together. How is it that Christ was able to have joy in his passion? He had joy knowing that he was acting within the will of God the Father. In fact, I'm convinced that Jesus was ecstatic to do the will of God. I mean, he tried to persuade God to choose another path. He was like, please let this cup of suffering be taken from me. You know, suffering was not what he wanted. But it didn't matter what he wanted. What mattered was what God wanted. Jesus had fully given himself over to love of God. And he was willing to do anything for his Father in heaven. And out of this love, Jesus was happy. He was happy to submit himself and carry out the duty set before him. Now, I can see that there may have been moments when Christ had all joy, emotionally speaking and even spiritually speaking, stripped from him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But at other times, I'm sure at plenty of other times, while he was being beaten, while being nailed to the cross, while hanging there in agony, Jesus knew. Jesus knew that he was accepting all of this out of love. This was his offering of sacrificial love, laying down his life for the world, allowing God to use his suffering for the redemption of all of creation. While on the cross, Jesus loved the people, nailing him to it. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Deep down, he had joy knowing that his own suffering was going towards the purpose of redeeming even those who were hurting him in that moment. And I'm sure also he thought of those closest to him, his mother Mary, his beloved disciple, his friends, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And perhaps he thought of all the people that he'd wanted to help in this life but couldn't. But he could do something for them now. He could do the most meaningful thing possible. Jesus suffered for a purpose. He suffered for the purpose of true love. For there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. He suffered for love, and this brought him joy, which gave him the strength to endure tortures without losing himself. Jesus never lost his charity or thoughtfulness. Up until the end, he was making sure that his mother would be taken care of. Behold your son, behold your mother. He was looking up, into, up to God, into your hands I commend my spirit. At the end, he was thinking of his mother and his father, full of love for them. And I think full of joy that he was faithful to them. So what does this mean for us? James says, Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. When we truly love, we will suffer anything. Suffering can be sweet when chosen for love. As Augustine puts it, when one loves, one does not suffer. Or if one does, the very suffering is loved. The apostles gladly suffered torture and death for their love of God. All of us are called in some way to suffer for God to make of our lives a living sacrifice. C.S. Lewis suffered while taking care of his sick and dying wife, who, as it happens, was named Joy. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he also suffered while sacrificing for his brother, Warney, who was an alcoholic. C.S. Lewis's brother would go on drinking binges, and often he'd go to Ireland and end up in hospitals night after night. C.S. Lewis would travel to Ireland to find, collect, and take care of his brother. Therese of Lejeune, a Carmelite nun, suffered in small ways out of love. 
She would suffer dependent, uh, she would suffer spending time with the least likable nuns in the convent. <laughs> she would treat them as her dear friends. One time, when Therese was rep reprimanded for failing to do one of her chores sufficiently, she took the blame, be suffering being seen as young and careless, even when it was actually another nun who had been assigned that chore. You see, Therese knew that it was worth sacrificing her own preferences, her image, her comfort, in order to love God and to love others. She said, I rejoice that God still lets me suffer for love of him. This is the way it is possible to fulfill Paul's advice to rejoice always. We rejoice in doing the will of God. We rejoice in doing acts of service for our neighbor. We rejoice in sacrificing for the sake of love. So with this in mind, love means to sacrifice, to submit ourselves and to serve, to forgive, to suffer, to be humble and self-forgetful, to be generous, and to abandon ourselves to God. This is what joy looks like when illuminated by love. All of these things here are joy. So let's take a moment, each of us individually, to check in with God and see how God is showing up within us. What's moving in your body? What promptings or insights might the Spirit be making salient within you? Can you think of a time in your life when you experienced great joy from giving yourself away? Can you think of times when, through pain, you were led into love and joy? The mystery of the cross contains an intersection and inversion of suffering and joy. In giving away everything, Christ received everything. The same is true for us, for it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Now, we face many challenges in trying to live this kind of joy out. Our culture tries to elevate joy and happiness above everything else. It will tell us that happiness is the goal of life, but this simply isn't the case. Joy in and of itself is not the point. Joy is there to point to love. And here we're focusing on love being serving God and serving others. So how is it that joy does this? Joy, when used well, can be very helpful in its ability to give us energy and to facilitate our growth. St. Philip Neri said, a joyful heart is more easily made perfect than a downcast one. Sometimes what we need is a little bit of delight or pleasure, a bit of dopamine to fuel us for the difficult work of living as foreigners in this world of exile from our true home. Happiness is a helpful tool for us on the journey. For instance, I often like to go do homework in the coffee shop here. When I'm there, someone that I know may come in and I'll have an unexpected lovely little interaction with them. This can give me a significant boost of happiness and energy, and then I can use that to fuel doing my homework or working on a project, and hopefully I can take that positive energy with me into my next interaction and be more friendly to the next person that I talk to. 
Joy can help us to be more friendly and kind, and it can give us energy to use for the kingdom. Therese said, in order to be holy, the most essential virtue is energy. With energy, one can easily reach the heights of perfection. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> the, the way I make sense of this is the process of growing and holiness involves energy. It is a constant process of repentance, of noticing that we're going in the wrong direction, that we, we, we need to change something about our lives, and we turn. We turn in another way, and we move in that direction. That takes energy. And by moving in the direction of love, we will also ultimately receive joy. Mm. We are designed so that when we love well, we often receive fulfillment from it. In the long term, the more of a life of virtue and love we live, the happier we will be. Aristotle discusses this in his writings about eudaimonia. You see, all kinds of people can figure out just by observing life that we are more likely to be happy if we live with kindness and peace and temperance and all of the virtues that come from true love, all of the things that come from God. This is just the natural way the world tends to work. Now, some people are skeptical of this, though, because while it is to some degree observable, it's not a flawless system, or at least it doesn't seem to be. It's not like, if I do five hours of loving activity, then I'll get five hours of joy sometime in the next week. No, love doesn't work this way. Love is not transactional, and love is not time-bound. But I do believe that love always leads to joy, and that's why I made this a solid line here. Because I think that's true at least in the long term. It takes trust and faith on our part to believe this because we don't always see or feel the results of our love in our life, but we trust that God will reward every person according to his works, as it says in Romans 2. In heaven, we will have much joy in looking back on all the ways which we sacrificed and suffered for others. So I, I made this a dotted line here because joy does not necessarily lead us to love. Um, it only does so if we channel it correctly. Also, it's not like we need joy as a prerequisite to enter into love. That's not the case. Uh, another fun thing about this diagram is that it works for the other weeks of Advent as well. So, so if you like plug in hope here or you plug in uh, peace here, then those things can help us in our journey and facilitating of, of loving God and loving others. And then when we do this, we receive hope and peace. You see, love is at the top because love is the aim. Above all these things, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So what I'm trying to say here about joy is that joy may be the byproduct of love, but it is not the point of love. Searching for joy directly is a trap. When we search for joy directly, we end up aiming for pleasure and endorphins and dopamine, and that's never enough. That's not fulfilling and that's not lasting. Joy is like a bird that alights in our hand, and if we try to grasp at it, it'll fly away. Carlton last week talked about how we must depend on God for our peace. We can't manufacture it ourselves. The same is true of true joy. If we want to secure joy, then it can exist even in suffering. We must receive it from God. 
It is a gift that we receive, not an object that we strive to claim. So, I feel like uh, a sermon on joy in our current context would not be complete without me at least mentioning toxic positivity. <laughs> mm. So this is when we inappropriately cling to joy. And there's a lot of reasons that we might do this. Uh, the most common reason, I think, connects to what Tyler shared with us a couple weeks ago, avoidance. See, people don't want to experience pain. People run from their pain. They mask their suffering with pleasure. As a seven on the Enneagram, I know all about this. <laughs> Those of us who fixate at type seven use toxic positivity as our primary defense mechanism. We sevens run from our pain using positive reframing and optimism to make everything seem okay. We go out on adventures and try new things and plan new projects just to distract ourselves with our own excitement. So personally, I had to do a lot of work learning to sit with my pain and to feel my sadness to its fullest extent. For me, the main difficulty was that I didn't think I had sufficient pain to be worth feeling. I hadn't been through starvation or war or abuse or my parents getting divorced, but I had been through failure, regret, rejection, shame, inadequacy. And I came to learn that it was very important for me to dignify these feelings by experiencing the fullness of their pain and sorrow. When I finally leaned into these things and let myself feel the pain without immediately labeling it or rationalizing it, then I discovered that there was much the depths of my sorrow had to teach me. And soon after, I began to experience a more full and unified version of myself. One other reason for toxic positivity that I'd like to point out is image. See, people want to be admired and envied and thought of as having everything all together. People in the church often attach themselves to this sort of image of happiness as their way of proving that they've got a strong relationship with God. Lots of people in our culture today struggle with this. We spend time on social media crafting our perfect image. But the mentality of avoiding negativity or pain disrespects the human experience of suffering. Let us not forget that the scriptures are not a bunch of happy stories that end well. Sorrow is all over the Bible. Half of the Psalms are lament. Job was more than a little frustrated with God for all of his sorrow. Uh, Ecclesiastes, my personal favorite, can leave one feeling at a loss for the pointlessness of earthly things. Life is full of thorns, as well as roses. This is something that the liturgical color of rose can remind us of today. And just like our Lord, when God gives us a crown of thorns, we can receive it as our crown of glory and joy. So finally, how do we practice joy without being toxically happy? We pursue love. Everything we do should be for the sake of love. But I'm going to give you a quick list of some specific practices which you can consider for yourself. Are these something that might be useful for you in this time? To practice joy, we pray. We ask God to give us whatever cares and focuses that he might want us to have. We rest, we Sabbath, we create margin in our lives, we play. Commune with God and with each other. We give thanks. We notice the little joys in our life and we live in the present moment. 
we become self-forgetful people. We recognize that happiness will come and go. It's not our job to be happy people. It's our job to be loving people. We should stop chasing joy. Joy will chase us once we put ourselves into God and no longer seek our own gain. Now, there's been one specific practice that I've found helpful for my own growth in authentic joy and sorrow that I'd like to share with you, and this is the liturgical calendar. As someone who personally was all about the celebration and not about the sorrow, I was great at the feasting, but not at the fasting. When I discovered the church calendar, I found a helpful invitation to lean into fasting during the time of Lent here. On these purple seasons of Advent and Lent, there is an emphasis on fasting and denying oneself. I took this as an opportunity to deny myself my joy and indulgence and to instead lean into my pain. During these times, I grew close to God and found a deeper joy. Submitting myself to these rhythms in general has been incredibly helpful for me. With this, I continue to grow in prayer and abandonment to God. Now, some of you may struggle with the opposite. For some of you, it might be important to focus on feasting during the times of Christmas and Easter. Tapping into these rhythms, all of the church calendar, uh, is, is something that is, is, is wonderful because it puts us in harmony with faithful Christians everywhere. And it can make manifest our global unity with the church. And personally, it can direct us towards a humble and submitted love. So my question for you is, how will you practice authentic joy? What can you do today or this week? I mentioned several things, fasting and feasting, prayer, gratitude, rest, play, service. Our world is obsessed with surface level pleasure. And I think people are hungry for another way. If we at UCC become people of true joy, our friends and our neighbors will notice. We will make a real change in our neighborhoods and our city. We will be salt and light in the world. And we'll know that our joy is the kind which makes God smile. Now in a moment, we will have our time of communion at the table where we discern the broken body and shed blood of our Lord. I'll invite Megan up as we contemplate this mystery both the suffering and the joy of Christ crucified. Thank you, Daniel. We are going to come to the table. And it strikes me, and Daniel, listening to your sermon, it, it strikes me that, that this is a practice and this is a true moment of joy. And it's not much. I mean, really, this is grape juice and bread. It's not much. But it represents something much more. It represents this communion, this union, this way back to God that Jesus has made for us. And so as we come to the table, I invite you to continue to reflect, Daniel, as you've prompted us to do, on joy. Joy as a gift and joy as a practice. So in just a moment, as the music plays, I'm going to invite you to come forward. Take the elements back to your seat. We'll take communion together. Before we do that, we have a practice here at UCC. Each week, we say a corporate confession. And this is our moment where we come before the Lord and, and each other and confess uh, that we are still in process, that we are still being made new. And so if you are willing, I invite you to stand with me now. 
whether in body or in spirit, and speak these words of confession aloud. <laughs> 